Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Initiative Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asian Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. For those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctoral program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education, education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Dr. Mark Clifford, who will be presenting a lecture on his book, Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World. Dr. Clifford is the author of Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World, and the president of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Hong Kong and a BA from the University of California, Berkeley. A Walter Badgett Fellow at Columbia University, he lived in Asia from 1987 until 2021. Previously, Clifford was executive director of the Hong Kong-based Asia Business Council, the editor-in-chief of the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, and publisher and editor-in-chief of the Standard in Hong Kong. He held senior editorial positions at Business Week and the Far Eastern Economic Review in Hong Kong and Seoul. He has won numerous academic book and journalism awards. Thank you, Dr. Clifford, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. I'm delighted uh, to be here and uh, to be giving this uh, lecture uh, about my book. Um, I will uh, talk for less than 60 minutes. I've been allotted 60 minutes, but uh, I think uh, I'd like to allow as much time as possible for questions. Uh, we have, I guess, around 100 people uh, taking part in this live webinar. And uh, I'm sure many of you uh, have questions and, and probably comments and are also expert in some of these um, areas. So um, I'm going to share my screen. Um, and um, whoops, that is not there we go, I think. Let's see. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is me. Um, the book is Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World. And the subtitle is Deliberately Provocative, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plans to End Freedom Everywhere. I'm mostly going to talk about Hong Kong, but uh, I'm also going to talk about Hong Kong as a template for what I uh, fear is Beijing's authority, its, its uh, inclination, its um, desire to impose its authoritarian values wherever and whenever it can uh, throughout Asia and indeed throughout the open societies throughout the world, open and closed societies. Um, so, uh, yeah, here is uh, how to reach me. Um, the um, contacts are also going to be uh, at the end of the, the lecture. So I'm, um, uh, and here's the cover of the book, of course, uh, which uh, I hope that um, some of you will have a chance to, to look at or to engage with, or at least engage with the ideas, because I think that the the um, challenge that China faces, and indeed, um, you know, we're speaking on this very poignant day where uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. I'd say the challenges that um, 
uh, authoritarian countries, notably China and, and secondarily Russia, pose uh, to, to freedom everywhere are, are quite um, formidable. This is the organization I'm with, the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. And I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about uh, my, really my personal journey and in in what's happened over the last couple of years for me personally in the context of, of Hong Kong, because I uh, went during this time from being a, uh, an observer, a, a foreigner, obviously, in Hong Kong, a journalist uh, for most of my career, to someone who unfortunately was caught up, really uh, felt the sharp end of Chinese power as it... Um, as it really crushed Hong Kong. And that was in my capacity as an independent non-executive director at Next Digital, a media company that published the uh, prominent pro-democracy newspaper, Apple Daily, which was forced out of business um, uh, under circumstances that I'll talk about more fully later on last, uh, last June. Um, so the key, these are the key points that I'm making. I'm, making, I'm gonna be making most of them implicitly um, and I'm going to be making them mostly in the context of Hong Kong, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll refer to them throughout, um, throughout the, the slideshow and, and the talk. And, but I want you to keep in mind, these are the big points. I think China is determined to re reclaim a commanding position in the world. Think back uh, 200, 220 years at the beginning of the 19th century, China uh, was responsible for one third of the global economy, 33%. Uh, that dropped to just a couple of percent uh, during the Maoist period. And that was that was sort of was the, the low point of a decline that uh, lasted uh, more than 150 years. And uh, Hong Kong really uh, played a central role in, in the uh, disruption of the, the pre-existing world order, one that saw the Chinese, the Qing Empire humbled, uh, defeated in numerous wars, subjected to what the Chinese call unequal treaties. I think that's quite a fair description. Um, and uh, the, the takeover of Hong Kong, the, the seizure of Hong Kong and its, um, its establishment as a British colony in, in 1841 was was you know really very much part of that process, and uh, it occurred in the context of an opium war, two opium wars, uh, and uh, the the um, uh, establishment of the the special administrative region of, of Hong Kong as part of China in 1997 uh, represented a, a historical return for for China, and I think a very important. Um, a moment in Chinese history where China could feel that it was um, reclaiming its sovereignty over its its territory, and uh, I'll I'll try to find some time to talk about Taiwan because that, of course, is the one remaining part uh, that China is determined to uh, get its hands on and exercise sovereignty over. Um, Chinese. So, point number one: China is determined to reclaim this this prominent position in the world economically. Um, as I said, it went from a third of the world economy in 1800 down to a couple of percent in the 1960s, and now it's at about one sixth of the world economy, 17, 18 percent. May have grown a little bit more uh, during the pandemic. China's growth has been stronger than most of the rest of the world's, of course. Uh, so China's well on its way to reclaiming. Um, uh, a, a, a very important position, if not the, the largest uh, economy in the world yet. It's still um, quite a bit smaller than the, than the US, although there are signs that it will overcome that. And I think with this uh, 
this more important economic uh, prowess will come growing political and, and, of course, military might and power. And my concern is that China wants to use that power uh, to to um, impose its brand of authoritarianism um, wherever it can. Um, so number two, point number two, the Chinese leadership sees uh, the current uh, moment. Uh, they see unique historical circumstances. They see a period of strategic opportunity that will allow it to accomplish this goal. And under Xi Jinping, it's prepared to take big risks. Uh, I think it's important to remember that Xi Jinping is uh, a risk taker of a sort that we don't usually uh, see among leaders of, of large global powers. Again, it's, it's very poignant to be uh, delivering this lecture on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, the first uh, invasion uh, that we've seen in Europe um, since, the, since 1945, since the end of World War II. So I think, unfortunately, we have a moment right now on the world stage where two large authoritarian countries are, are, are led by men who have a real capacity for risk. And so far, Xi Jinping, at least, has gotten away with the risks that he's taken. He's militarized the South China Sea, despite promises to President Obama that he would not. He has um, presided over a crackdown in Xinjiang that has seen, let's say, a million or so um, Muslim Uyghurs um, put into uh, re-education camps, uh, but how, whatever you want to call them, uh, they're prisons. And uh, they, this represents the largest incarceration of a civilian population since the Nazi period. I mean, just think about that. I, we don't know if it's a few hundred thousand or more than a million people who are there at any given time, but the numbers are staggering. In any way you look at it, uh, it contravenes international law and it is, it's an internment on a large scale of a civilian population. And of course, he's presided over, Xi Jinping has presided over um, a crackdown in Hong Kong that, um, well, until the invasion of the Ukraine was, uh, I, I think, the only um, instant I can think of in the in modern times, certainly since 1945, where a free, prosperous, peaceful city was essentially um, destroyed in terms of its freedom and its, its liberties. And I think even the, the Soviet... Um, takeover of Eastern Europe in the 1940s was in the context of occupying Soviet troops after 1945 and the defeat of the Nazis. So I, I think what's happened with Hong Kong, the, the destruction of a free city that posed no threat to China is, uh, is something that should be very worrying to all of us. And uh, again, you know, a real, you know, cause for, for concern at a time when uh, Russia also is in, is, uh, it's so aggressive. Um, so with, uh, with those three points uh, in mind, let me um, move on and, and talk a little bit about um, what, the, how I went from being an observer to a participant over the last uh, couple of years and, and uh, talking about some of the people that I worked with and, and where they are now. This is Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai is uh, somebody that I've known um, since 1993. Um, this, unfortunately, uh, was August 2020 outside his house in, um, in Kowloon and um, just off, well, on Kaduri Avenue in a leafy, tranquil enclave uh, above, above the very crowded district of Mancock. Um, Jimmy uh, was uh, being arrested uh, for the, well, it wasn't the first time, I think it was the second time um, that year, uh, and he was very publicly um, being humiliated, I would say. Uh, this was during COVID. 
Uh, there were supposed to be social distancing measures in place, and yet the pictures as he's being led out of his house, being manhandled, being you know, grabbed by, uh, by the police, um, I think showed the, the degree to which um, the Chinese authorities, and I'm, when I say Chinese, I, I really mean the people in Beijing, in Zhongnanhai, the Chinese authorities were determined to destroy Jimmy Lai. Today, I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit, spoiler alert, uh, Jimmy Lai, is, he's 74 years old. Um, he's a diabetic. He's a devout Roman Catholic. He's always preached nonviolence. He's a man of peace. Uh, in fact, many of the protesters, many of the student protesters in 2019, um, you know, and throughout the, the last 10 years or so, thought he was far too moderate. You know, his generation hadn't really accomplished anything. So it's ironic that he's emerged as a as what the Chinese call a black hand and, and the leader of a new uh, gang of four, uh, which is, again, ironic, given the fact that he's a man of peace. But um, this uh, the same day that this happened, about the same time, um, 200 and odd police um, came into the next digital headquarters. Um, so uh, this is this is where Apple Daily newspaper is um, is or was published. Uh, it uh, was founded in 1996 um, and uh, 96, 95. Um, so it had been publishing for a quarter century when um, the, the Chinese authorities decided that um, what it was doing was was illegal. And uh, uh, again, let me just fast forward a little bit. Uh, so this was August 2020, shortly after uh, uh Chinese authorities imposed, without Hong Kong's consent, a national security law that uh, essentially said anybody who criticized the authorities could be sent to jail for the rest of their lives uh, without trial, without bail. Now, there are a few things around that. Obviously, there it's a little more specific. Secession, subversion, collusion with the foreign powers were all, were all outlawed. But in fact, the law means whatever authorities decide it should mean. Uh, so for example, there's a speech therapist who was a co-author of a children's book that featured sheep and wolves. She's now in jail on national security law charges, denied bail, no trial in sight, let alone a conviction, because she wrote a children's book that features sheep, that features sheep and wolves that was deemed to, to um, um, contravene perhaps the national security law. So uh, despite the fact that there are constitutional protections uh, for Hong Kongers, free speech, freedom of assembly, all these nice freedoms uh, that we enjoy in the West um, and uh, the right to be presumed innocent until convicted, the right to have bail, all of these are being denied to national security law defendants. So I don't have pictures of the next time the police uh, came into the office, which was last June. Um, and uh, but this time they sent 550 uh, armed police, uh, treated uh, the Apple Daily uh, newsroom like a crime scene and um, took away a number of people. Jimmy Lai was already in jail at that point. In fact, he's been in jail for about 15 months now, since December 3rd, 2020. And um, uh, except for a couple of days at Christmas time that year under house arrest. And uh, they they took away the chief executive officer, the CEO, who had been the editor-in-chief at Apple. They took away the editor-in-chief. And by the time the dust had settled, seven of my former colleagues, so I was on the board of directors, um, seven of my former colleagues were in jail. In fact, they're still in jail. 
And other than Jimmy Lai, who has been convicted on some very minor civil disobedience charges that before um, the national security law came into effect and before Beijing really cracked down on Hong Kong, these sorts of charges um, would have been, if, if he'd even been prosecuted, which would have been unlikely, there were things like lighting a candle. Um, uh, he wouldn't have, if he had been prosecuted, he would not have gone to jail. And he's serving uh, 20 months right now on civil disobedience charges. But the other six of my former colleagues, the editor-in-chief, the former editor-in-chief, former CEO, number of editorial writers and editors and journalists, they're just sitting in jail, denied bail. You know, their trial date seems to be shifting around and never really happen and gets pushed back because they were just doing their job as journalists, as media workers, just as they had done for 26, they and their colleagues had done for 26 years at, at Apple Daily. Um, so all of a sudden, what was just normal behavior in, in Hong Kong, normal free press, open society was deemed illegal. And it's, you know, it's one thing to talk about these things. It's all very abstract. But when you're, when you're on the a board of directors, and your colleagues are being marched off to jail, not really not to be seen again, forced to resign, the company's thrown into chaos, because on top of uh, jailing my colleagues, um, uh, the authorities, the then Secretary for Security, John Lee, said that he had, quote, reason to believe, just those three words, reason to believe that three of our subsidiaries had uh, violated the national security law, including Apple Daily, the newspaper, and the website. Uh, so because of that, our bank accounts were frozen, so we had to throw almost a thousand people out of work, uh, and the, the company had to shut down. I mean, we couldn't get permission from from John Lee, who's now been promoted to the number two position in Hong Kong, the chief, chief secretary. We couldn't get permission to pay our staff. We couldn't get permission to pay China Light and Power, the electricity company. We couldn't get permission to pay the phone company. So John Lee put us out of business, all very legal, all completely legal under the new national security law. But he put us out of business because he decided he didn't want us in business. He had reason to believe that we had violated a law so vague that you can lock up speech therapists for, for writing illustrated children's books. I mean, it's a kind of Alice in Wonderland meets Franz Kafka meets George Orwell. I mean, it's just, it's really too horrible to 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 comprehend, except when you you, you think about the actual individuals that, that that I've known who are just who are in jail, and there's scores of them, um, who you know, ranging in age from their teens to you know Jimmy Lyon is in his seventies, um, most of whom haven't been convicted, who are really being held, I would say, on completely um, bogus uh, charges. So. That's that's how I went from when I started this book, having recently done my PhD in Hong Kong history at, at Hong Kong U, as Amanda said, um, I uh, I wanted to try to write a, a longer history of um, uh, of Hong Kong's politics, because it's often said that Hong Kong people don't care about politics or uh, that the you know, this is all a kind of CIA British, you know, plot you know, kind of leftover from colonialism and that, um, you know, again, Hong Kong is a business city, all people care about is money. And that's emphatically not true. So what I'm going to do now is, um, for most of the rest of the, the time here is, is to 
walk you through a series of, of photos um, that are from 2019, mostly. Uh, some of them go back to the handover in 1997. And I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit in history, but I think it's just nice to uh, for you, the audience, to have a you know vivid sense of, of some of the scenes of Hong Kong um, around the time of the handover and, and beyond, but especially during the uh, the 19, uh, sorry, the demonstrations in 2019. So this is um, the evening of June 30th, 1997, right uh, around midnight, I guess, must have been, be just after midnight. The Chinese flags uh, are now raised, the Hong Kong flag on the left, um, the Chinese flag, of course, you know, with the five stars next to it. Um, and uh, behind it, of course, the big Chinese flag and the UK flag. This um, this ended 156 years of uh, of colonial rule by the British. Um, from the British standpoint, and from the standpoint of probably about six out of ten Hong Kong people, maybe a little bit more, um, it was a pretty good period in many ways. Uh, it wasn't perfect. I mean, it was it was a colony, right? That had to end. It was often a racist uh, kind of place, filled with social snobbery, but. It was, above all, a place that um, had a sense of fairness, a sense of liberty, a sense of freedom. It was not democratic. I mean, elections were, were limited, but it was a place where there was at least a semblance of rule of law. There was good governance, good administration, um, very little corruption after, after many years of being very corrupt. But the last uh, 30 or so years of British rule, 20 to 30 years, were saw a real cleanup. Um, it was, of course, a major international financial center. So I think you know, people greeted this, this moment with um, trepidation, of course, because uh, they, many of them or their parents had, had fled communist Chinese rule. Jimmy Lai, for example, came to Hong Kong uh, at the age of, of 12 um, in, I guess, 1959 or 1960. Um, he, he was an illegal immigrant. He hid himself in the, in the bottom of a fishing boat, of a sampan, and made his way to Hong Kong, um, became a child laborer, worked in a factory, uh, taught himself English by reading a dictionary. And uh, like so many other Hong Kongers of that time, uh, scrambled up the ladder and found a great deal of success. He um, owned a textile mill after after some years he branched he then branched out uh downstream into into retailing he started a, a fast fashion company giordano that was a kind of um a kind of h m precursor or, or uniqlo um and uh then around the time of uh 1989 and the the killings in in tiananmen square in and around tiananmen square on the night of june 3rd the morning of june 4th uh jimmy lai um became radicalized like many Hong Kongers uh, and realized that the the Chinese takeover that was, that was going to happen just eight years later um, really needed to be resisted. And he he started um, started a, first a magazine. And when I met him, he told me about his plans to, to start a newspaper. And that was Apple Daily, which started in 1995. So by the time this handover came, uh, there was there was pride, of course, among many Chinese that um, among many Hong Kongers that uh, their country would be ruled would be Chinese again. It wouldn't be ruled by some people from halfway around the world who'd colonized it. But there was also, of course, a lot of trepidation. And uh, I think this this picture with the the uh, Chinese military led by the People's Liberation Army, um, uh, you know, I think captures. Um, uh, yeah, captures the moment. I should also mention that the, the flags, which are flying so um, so smartly on the left, uh, 
are uh, an artful uh, charade. Uh, they, a friend of mine was involved with rigging up the fishing line that made it look like they were blowing, snapping smartly in the wind. It was, of course, inside in a convention center because it was it was raining. But that, I think, um, sort of sums up some of the, the theater and the pageantry. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to show a few more photos from around this, this era. Uh, this is also from that night. This was, I think, early the next morning. Uh, when the PLA troops came into Hong Kong for the first time, um, you know, very, very old truck. I think they've really upgraded their military gear since then. And you see, of course, a lot of people are waving. Uh, they're waving Hong Kong flags. But I think uh, these probably these people, I can't say for certain, but many of these people were put up to it by local pro-communist uh, organizations, United Front uh, work group uh, organizations. But again, I think there was a genuine feeling of of pride and of hope and and uh thinking that well you know maybe china had changed maybe the promises that china made to hong kong that it would enjoy a high degree of autonomy for 50 years that it would be able to keep its way of life the mini constitution that china promulgated which promised freedom of speech freedom of association freedom of worship the right to be um, considered innocent until proven guilty, the right to a fair trial, the right to a jury trial, all these things that have now been eviscerated under the national security law, um, or at least curtailed, um, were, were, you know, were promised and were, were hoped for. Um, this was the last governor. I'm going to show you a few pictures of him. This is Chris Patton. Uh, I mentioned it only because he obviously was cut from uh, different cloth from many of his colonial predecessors. He was the first retail politician to uh, to serve as Hong Kong's governor. Um, it was a, a, a historical quirk of fate that he ended up with the job. Uh, but uh, Prime Minister John Major, who had been angered by what he regarded as humiliating treatment that was meted out to him in um, in Beijing when he became the first Western leader to visit the Chinese capital after the Tiananmen killings in um, fall of 1991. Um, and uh, Patton uh, lost an election. Uh, he was available for the job. And I think Major wanted the British to go out proudly and wanted them to go out um, feeling that they had done their best to establish um, what they could of, a, of an open, free, and democratic society before China took over. And uh, I should say that not all of Major's predecessors felt that way. Margaret Thatcher would have liked Hong Kong to be independent and fought to for British rule to continue after 1997, but was rebuffed by Deng Xiaoping. But despite Thatcher's you know, fervent anti-communism, her concern for the people of Hong Kong, Hong Kongers were not even included in any of the negotiations between the British and the Chinese. I mean, it really was a colonial possession whose fate was uh, decided between, between two powerful uh, countries. But um, I think Patton brought a very, very different uh, sensibility. And it's one that was in marked contrast to the, to the people who followed him after 1997. So here he is playing ping pong uh, on the street. I don't think... Uh, any of his predecessors or any of his successors would have ever uh, been playing ping pong. And uh, I don't know, but I imagine that that young boy on the left probably was thrashing him, but uh, which again, he was, he was a good sport. In that previous picture, he was eating egg tarts, which are a Hong Kong specialty, but he used to go on unscripted walkabouts and just talk to people and meet people. And, and again, this kind of retail politicking, 
was very different from his predecessors, but also set a very high bar for those who followed him. Nobody who's followed him has been able to do that, has been has felt really secure in, in going out and uh, meeting people. A final uh, shot of Patton. This is after he left. You can see just the and, and I saw this when he came when he came back and uh, I interviewed him at, uh, when he was uh, giving a talk at Hong Kong U about 20 years ago. And uh, just the, the affection that the crowds that, that just ordinary people had for him was really quite extraordinary. And, and I've I've met all four of the chief executives who followed. Nobody had anything like the, the kind of popular appeal that, that Patton did. Um, so let me uh, fast forward. This is 2003. Uh, this was um, uh, uh, a protest, obviously, uh, in the heart of Hong Kong. Uh, you can see the trams. It's near Victoria Park, and it's uh, the protesters are walking about two miles down to the central business district um, where a government house uh, then, well, where the administrative offices were at the time. Um, the the basic law didn't that was the mini constitution promulgated by uh, China didn't just uh, promise Hong Kong people uh, all the rights that I mentioned before, but it also imposed a number of obligations on Hong Kong. And uh, among them was the necessity to introduce national security legislation. Now, of course, every country has national security legislation, and no one would, would say that's a bad thing. Uh, what people in Hong Kong did fear was that national security legislation uh, would be drawn and would be implemented in such a way that it would threaten their way of life, their freedoms. And as we've seen from these last couple of years, that was a, that was a correct interpretation. Um, in 2003, when the first attempt was made to introduce national security leg legislation under so-called Article 23 of the Basic Law, um, people made their opinions known. And we had something like 500,000 people um, come out on the streets. This um, was not unprecedented because at the time of the Tiananmen killings in 1989, so still under British rule, there were, there were crowds of, of this size on one or two occasions. Um, uh, but this was the first large-scale demonstration after the um, reversion to Chinese rule, and I think was a real shock to, to Beijing and to, um, to the leadership in Hong Kong, um, who uh, I think were, were and are very out of touch with the feelings of, of the Hong Kong people. And so this was a, a real surprise had uh, major political repercussions and uh, eventually saw the resignation of the then the first chief executive, Tung Chi Hua, um, purportedly on health grounds, although he's still going strong almost 20 years later, um, and the resignation of several key ministers. I also think in retrospect, it's clear that it woke Beijing up to the fact that um, Hong Kongers were not universally or even, you know, in significant numbers welcoming the return to Chinese rule. I, I really honestly think that Beijing didn't understand the, the, the quest for freedom that people in Hong Kong had, the, the uh, concern they had about um, China's authoritarian system being imposed on Hong Kong, the worry of the, of the midnight knock at the door. I mean, the great thing about Hong Kong is it was a city that was, was, was an enclave. It was the only really free city in, in uh, China. It's the only place that the um, commemorations of Tiananmen Square every June 4th could take place until, well, 2019 was the last one. Um, 
And uh, I, I think that they, the Chinese deluded themselves into really believing that there was this kind of, the, the kind of Chineseness uh, of Hong Kong would, would overcome its, its, I guess, like open society, its freedom loving uh, aspect. And I think what 2003, this demonstration on July 1st, 2003, um, six years you know, to the day after China took over, what that showed was that uh, China had not won the hearts and the minds of, of Hong Kong people. So I'm going to skip forward a few years and, and uh, go on to some other um, um, pictures of demonstrations here. This is, uh, this is uh, 2012. Uh, the guy in the center is Joshua Wong. He has emerged as one of the, um, I think, most forceful advocates of, of democracy in Hong Kong. He's in prison right now. At that time, he was, he was 15 years old. Um, so uh, he was born, and I'm trying to think if I've got my math right here, but uh, he is leading a, a, um, a protest against an attempt to introduce so-called patriotic education into the curriculum, which is essentially uh, communist um, ideology and, and history. Uh, he was born uh, just before the, the handover in October 1996. So he's one of the generation that I think that the Chinese just imagined would grow up feeling very Chinese, very attached to the motherland. And yes, Joshua Wong is very Chinese, but he's more attached to freedom and to the values, the core values that he grew up in Hong Kong as an open society than he was to the, the, the communist version of, of Chineseness. And so, I mean, it's remarkable that this, this guy at the age of 15 uh, started leading um, uh, these, these protests. And it, he got 50,000 uh, people out for, for some of them some evenings and the government had to back down. Um, the, the woman uh, on the left is Agnes Chow. We'll probably, I think we'll see another picture of her later on. Um, yeah, this whole group of, of teenagers, of people born around the handover who don't even remember the British period or the colonial period, they actually emerged as far more forceful advocates for democracy and, and for Hong Kong than, say, the generation of Jimmy Lai, who, as as forceful and as committed as they were, they weren't as, as radical and as committed to taking action as Joshua Wong um, was and is. Uh, this is uh, that same year. This is um, some of the students uh, protesting against the um, the patriotic education uh, curriculum. So, you know, pretty good for a movement that was uh, spearheaded by a 15 year old. Um, this uh, is the so-called umbrella revolution, umbrella movement, Occupy Central of 2014. Um, Joshua Wong, who's picture you saw was a couple years older by that point. I think he was, uh, let's see, um, he would have been um, 17, I guess, when when he led the occupation, just short of his 18th birthday, um, when he led when he led a group um, over over a fence, and they occupied um, a, a part of the government headquarters. And, uh, a, you know, just actually very bad policing uh, ended up um, uh bringing people out in the streets and uh, seeing um, tear gas and police violence on a, of a sort that hadn't been seen since the, the colonial period, since the 1967 uh, Cultural Revolution, when um, you know, the leftists uh, uh, rioted and, and uh, set bombs off in the streets of Hong Kong. This was a peaceful, nonviolent uh, 
uprising. It did uh, severely disrupt Hong Kong for 79 days. Uh, this area of between Central and Admiralty near the new government headquarters was was occupied. Uh, it obviously brought traffic uh, to a standstill on those streets. And um, uh, it, you know, it was wonderful that it ended peacefully. It was uh, unfortunate that the government faced with a kind of outpouring that, that uh, it had seen in in 2014, chose not to negotiate, chose to wait the protesters out and uh, and then crack down and arrest many of them afterwards. So I think there's actually a kind of continuity between 2014 and the the uh, much more militant street tactics that, that we saw in the Occupy Central movement uh, and 2019. And I'll, you'll see a lot of pictures of 2019. Um, so it Hong Kong protests went from being incredibly peaceful um where people from you know you have babies in backpacks to people in their 80s uh and there was still that that aspect of it but as we'll see beginning in 2014 but certainly in 2019 there was a much more uh much harder edge to to the protesters who who were extremely frustrated at beijing's uh unwillingness to to keep its promises under the basic law and I mentioned freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, right to be considered innocent, right to a jury trial. But there's one other really important thing um, that's worth underscoring, and that's that Beijing had promised Hong Kong a path to universal suffrage. What that really meant was that Hong Kongers were promised that they could uh, elect their mayor and their city council. The, the mayor equivalent is called the chief executive. The city council is the legislative council. This was supposed to happen um, you know, during, during the, um, after the Chinese uh, handover, sometime during these 50 years of, of promised uh, high degree of autonomy in the special administrative region. Uh, but the expectation was it would happen in 2007. The basic law allowed a kind of 10-year cooling off period. Uh, but everybody, pro-Beijing people, pro-established people, business people, government people, before 1997, the promise, the mantra always was in 2007, you'll have universal suffrage. Well, 2007 came and went, no universal suffrage. By 2014, it was clear that Beijing was really dialing back its promises for universal suffrage. Uh, it's an open question as to whether or not they ever really intended to implement universal suffrage. I think they, they actually would have liked to if uh, they could have been confident that they were controlling the outcome. In other words, that the political parties were, were in a narrow enough spectrum and were essentially pro-Beijing so that Beijing could be comfortable with the outcome. It really... Um, you know, was not comfortable with with an open and democratic society as part of China. And that's unfortunate, because I think that has, um, you know, ultimately, that this lack of trust, this lack of faith in the Hong Kong people uh, has caused Beijing to react in ways that have ultimately, uh, you know, are on their way to destroying Hong Kong. So this is 2014, Occupy Central, 79 days of um, you know, not all pitched street battles, but uh, um, pretty intense uh, political confrontation right in the heart of, of Central. Um, this is uh, Joshua Wong uh, on the left and Agnes Chow uh, on, the, on the right. It's, um, I, I show you these pictures only, only to give you a sense of try to give a, a, you put some faces behind these names. I mean, it's often very abstract to be talking about big political movements, but these are basically kids. They were teenagers. They were, you know, 
they were uh, trying to um, work for what they believed was good for their society. You know, we could we could argue as to whether or not they did everything perfectly or, or whether or not they were naive or too idealistic. But change is, is often led by people who are in their, their teens and in their 20s. And they took seriously what China had promised. And uh, I don't think that uh, people like this were, were an existential threat to China. And unfortunately, um, Xi Jinping runs China and he seemed to feel differently. This uh, is another picture from 2014. I, I think it's, uh, it's um, uh, speaks for itself. You don't have permission to vote. I, I liked it because it, it shows, I think, some of the wit and the humor. And, and uh, in 2014, we saw an incredible creative artistic outpouring among the people who were camped out along the, the streets for those 79 days. And uh, I think the the umbrella movement uh, gave lie to the, the um, notion that Hong Kong people only care about money. They don't care about politics. They have no they have no artistic or creative interests. I mean, that might have been true of the, the generation of refugees from the 1950s and 60s who needed to worry about a roof over their head. But it, it certainly wasn't true of the people that came up in Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow's de generation. They grew up in a more affluent time. and They were well-educated. They were uh, educated in liberal studies. They were taught to think for themselves, and they did. This is uh, the official narrative. This was uh, 2017. Um, I think you, you see the kind of difference between uh, Chris Patton's era and um, Xi Jinping, who stands on the right, and Carrie Lam, who is the fourth chief executive, um, being, um, being inaugurated on July 1st, uh, 2017. Uh, she remains the chief executive. She's coming to the end of her first term. Um, it's unclear whether or not she'll have a second term. Uh, Chief executives in Hong Kong are permitted two five-year terms. Nobody's made it 10, ten years yet, and um, we can get into this in the Q&A, but I think the pandemic in Hong Kong and the uh, alarming rise in COVID infections is, um, is, is really causing concern among Xi Jinping and among Carrie Lam. This is Margaret Ong, who uh, was another of the older um, pro-democracy activists. She's a barrister. Uh, she was convicted on civil disobedience charges uh, recently, but um, on account of her age, was um, uh, was not sentenced to jail. Um, I, I have this picture partly to show Margaret, who is, you know, in, in any other society, would be uh, like many of these people, like Joshua, like Agnes, like Jimmy Lai, would be regarded as a uh, a, a, an engaged citizen of the sort that we would commend for being involved in civic affairs. Um, it, it's also interesting, um, this is not a stage photo, um, to see the amount of money that is in the box that she's collecting. Um, it's for um, uh, Justice Defense Fund, um, and uh, it's filled with uh, mostly $100 Hong Kong bills, so about $12.70 each. Um, and uh, so imagine, you know, some fundraising in the States where everybody's shoving in $10 bills. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, the narrative that uh, is spun by the Beijing media is that the CIA, um, mostly the CIA, uh, funded this uprising or all, all these uprisings in 2014 and 2019. One of the amazing things about going, any of you who have been to Hong Kong political rallies, is that the amount of money that's that's raised uh, is extraordinary. I mean, people are just stuffing in twenties, hundreds, five hundred dollar Hong Kong notes 
uh, for multiple organizations. You see right behind Margaret, another guy has a, a box filled with somewhat less money. But um, the the generosity among Hong Kong people uh, for, for the pro-democracy cause was really quite extraordinary. And uh, I think it's worth thinking about that when when one hears uh, news about you know CIA funding or the National Endowment for Democracy training protesters to to rise up, which is again the kind of dominant um, Beijing line. Uh, this is Martin Lee, uh, often called the father of democracy. Also, like Margaret Ong, uh, convicted on civil dis disobedience charges recently and not sentenced to jail. Um, Jimmy Lai was sentenced to jail. Um, and uh, Margaret and uh, Martin were were not uh, were I think the only ones not sentenced to jail in that in that trial. Um, this is one of the Tiananmen vigils that was held on June fourth. Uh, I think this might be 2019. I'm not sure, but um, uh, again, I think it gives a sense of the somber, uh, peaceful, um, commemorative uh, nature of uh, of well, particularly the June fourth um, events in in Hong Kong. This. Uh, we're now up to 2019. Um, this, I believe, was June 16th, 2019. Um, so as um, some of you will know, um, in 2019, uh, Carrie Lam introduced a bill that would have made it, uh, would have essentially erased the distinction in many senses between um, Hong Kong and China in terms of the legal systems. It would have made it possible for China to extradite people from Hong Kong uh, back to mainland China. Now, it is a little strange, perhaps, that, that an enclave like Hong Kong could exist with its own legal system, its own legal protections within uh, a communist, uh, dare I say, totalitarian country like China. But that was the case until, um, uh, well, until, well, I guess, still is the case. I'm not, the extradition bill has not actually been passed, but um, I think Hong Kong people felt that uh, if there would be no protection, it would erase the distinction between the mainland and Hong Kong and mean that if, for example, a, a businessman were in a dispute with a mainland partner and, and the mainland partner were able to prevail on a judge in China to issue an extradition uh, warrant that that person could be whisked off to China where there was, you know, very little chance of justice, particularly if you're on the wrong side of a, of a powerful, uh, uh, let's say former business partner. So uh, this galvanized um, protests of, on a scale that were even larger than the ones uh, of 2003 or 2014. Um, on uh, this day on, on June 16th, uh, an estimated 2 million people were in the streets. I mean, nobody really knows the number. I think the police say a couple hundred thousand. That's preposterously low. 2 million is pretty high, but it was impossible to count because pretty much everybody in the city, uh, or not everybody in the city, about one out of every three or one out of every four people in Hong Kong uh, went to Victoria Park and went to Central. And I mean, it was basically... Uh, immovable. Um, I was I was uh, observed the end of the march and the the number of people was just extraordinary. You can go back and look at some of the aerial photos and there are crowds like this stretching for about two miles. Um, it was um, almost beyond belief and it's even more extraordinary when you think that Hong Kong's population then was just shy of seven and a half million people. Um, for a variety of reasons, the border and the political controls in China, very, very, very few people from, from mainland China came to this protest. So let's assume there were 2 million people, 7.5 million people in Hong Kong, not drawing from the hinterland, not drawing from the mainland. So that's 
that's more than one out of every four people in Hong Kong taking part. And then for every person who took part, there are probably one or two people at home who were at least sympathetic. Uh, so, you know, the people of Hong Kong really spoke. They went out in the streets and they spoke. And this was the day after Carrie Lam had said that she wouldn't push ahead with this extradition bill. But by that point, the trust of the Hong Kong people in their leadership, in Carrie Lam and in the Beijing leadership had, had broken. Uh, earlier that week, there had been police brutality of a sort that had never been seen before in Hong Kong. And uh, I think that people in, in Hong Kong were just like really fed up. Um, most, uh, certainly most democratic countries would, uh, would negotiate in, in a situation like this. Um, even authoritarian countries uh, occasionally negotiate. Um, when I first moved to Asia, I was, in, I was stationed in, in South Korea. And uh, I was there in June 1987 when hundreds of thousands of Koreans took to the streets and demanded direct presidential elections because the, the then ruling president, General Chun Doo-hwan, wanted to put his hand-picked successor, General No Tae-yu, in power. After weeks of protest, No Tae-yu came on and said, OK, you win. Here's my seven-point plan. We're going to move towards democracy. You get direct presidential elections. And we've seen how far South Korea has come in, in 35 years. And it's, it's so sad that Hong Kong's leaders wouldn't negotiate with the people, wouldn't actually give them uh, assurances that they would consider that they would continue to have the freedoms that they were promised, that they would enjoy a move towards universal suffrage, which again, would not be destabilizing for, for China as a whole. It was electing the mayor and the city council in a far off place on the southern coast of China, more than a thousand miles from the capital. The fact that China can't tolerate any kind of dissent, uh, I, I think is, is something we should find um, very uh, worrying. So I'm gonna go through a little more quickly some of these, these shots from 2019, but uh, I think that although the national security law has, has really beaten down the people of Hong Kong and would make protests like this virtually impossible at this point. Um, it's worth remembering that just um, less than three years ago, we had millions of Hong Kongers out in the streets expressing their views. 100,000 or more have, have emigrated, have left Hong Kong. Um, but most of the people, most of the Hong Kong people who are out there are still there. And I think that they, they believe in democracy. They believe in an open society. They believe in freedom. They don't want to worry about the midnight knock at the door. And uh, in every election there's been in Hong Kong since 1991, rough, which is when a, a real election started, uh, roughly six out of 10 people have voted for the pro-democracy candidates. So I think although China has, has beaten and cowed Hong Kong into at least temporary submission, we have to remember that given the chance to express themselves, the, the scenes that you'll see in some of these uh, shots, I think uh, ref more truly reflect what the people of Hong Kong think. These are, uh, this was one of the Lenin walls named after John Lenin, uh, uh, which uh, were first in Prague in around the time of the, um, the, the Czech, um, uprising, well, freedom, I guess, and from Soviet Union and democracy. Um, and uh, there, you can see all these hand, um, these little post-its, basically, with people expressing um, solidarity with the democracy movement. And these became quite contested with pro-Beijing people tearing down the, um, 
tearing them down as as uh, they got support from from the authorities. But these popped up all over the city. Really quite extraordinary. Um, this uh, really angered China. Um, this was the night of uh, July 21st. This is outside the Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office, which uh, oversees, which is Beijing's kind of main locus point of power, um, or was until the national security law came in. And this, of course, is, is the seal of the People's Republic of China. And uh, I think the the sight of, um, you know, what, what the... Chinese leadership regards as, as this, this sacred uh, seal uh, exemplifying uh, the, the People's Republic of China um, uh, being defaced with, with black paint was you know, just, just really provoked anger and, and I think um, was a kind of red line that um, uh, I think you know, hardened, stiffened their resolve to, to really um, deal with Hong Kong quite harshly. Um, there's uh, Agnes Chow and uh, Joshua Wong again, a couple years uh, older. Uh, Agnes uh, speaks Japanese and uh, is holding a, a Japanese uh, sign there. Um, again, just, just to try to give some sense of the, um, the mass nature of the protests, uh, these are healthcare workers who are protesting. Um, you see many of them wearing a patch on their eye. Uh, there was a young woman, uh, Indonesian journalist, who was um, uh, either blinded or suffered uh, serious eye damage as a result of being hit in the eye with a with a beanbag uh, fired by the police, a projectile, and this was a protest against it. Um, again and again, uh, credible reports of police violence uh, weren't taken seriously by authorities, weren't investigated seriously. Um, after uh, June 13th, which uh, was really in the first week of the demonstrations, Amnesty International came out with a report, how not to police a demonstration, um, um, really calling uh, Hong Kong authorities to task for their very poor and, and overly heavy handed um, uh, reaction to protesters and things just got worse as the this the summer went on and I should say there was there definitely was uh, um, a reaction and a counter reaction from the protesters and the violence um, really amped up on the side of uh, protesters as well as I think you can see from from this uh, rather poignant picture um, uh, the protesters were were obviously better and better armed in terms of their the gas masks to deal with tear gas helmets um, to deal with projectiles. Um, you know, it, it's it's remarkable that so few people died. Uh, one person was killed uh, by protesters. In fact, they threw a rocket at someone and hit an old man and hit him in the head quite tragically. There were there's some unexplained deaths. There are some suicides. Um, uh, there's uh, there's some controversy around uh, some of the police actions, but uh, I, I really have to give both sides credit for for this not being a bloodbath. It wasn't at Tiananmen, and uh, I think um, uh, I think China learned something from 1989. This uh, is interesting because in Prince Edward Station, this is an MTR station in Hong Kong. Uh, there were uh, beatings by police and there were rumors that some people were killed. I have not seen any credible evidence to suggest that, but uh, what emerged was a makeshift uh, shrine with um, uh, white chrysanthemums, um, which often are um, put at, at uh, the shrines, the scene of a death. Um, so there was this anger which, uh, which developed um, 
uh, well, actually, unfortunately, against the MTR as well, because it was seen as, as shielding the police. And the, the videos and the pictures of the beatings that, that took place in this uh, station on August 31st are, are ex extraordinary and very disturbing. Um, these, uh, I think getting a little clo closer to the end here, um, these are just some pictures of, um, uh, this is obviously an upscale shopping mall and uh, just filled with, with thousands of, of people. Um, the hands are, are raised five, there, there were five demands uh, for full democracy, for investigation into police brutality and um, some, some other demands. And um, the, these were um, a cornerstone of, of the, the demonstrators calls throughout that summer. Um, this is Lion Rock, the iconic uh, uh, symbol of Hong Kong that, that uh, symbolizes Hong Kong resilience and a kind of can-do spirit. Uh, the Lion Rock, um, you know, kind of era of the 1960s and 70s when Hong Kongers gritted their teeth and worked hard is, forms a really important part of the, of the Hong Kong mythology. And uh, protesters were determined to uh, kind of seize the rock as their own. And there were, there were uh, pro-democracy signs uh, put up there, quickly removed by authorities. Um, another scene, you know, showing even more people from one of the uh, shopping malls. And again, it's just, it's just, um, it's, it's hard to imagine that this was only two and a half years ago, but day after day, lunchtime after lunchtime, evening after evening, and particularly on the weekends, just hundreds of thousands, millions of people, of Hong Kong people coming out asking their government for to be accountable, asking their government to investigate police violence, asking their government to stop the extradition bill, asking their government for the democracy, the universal suffrage that was promised to them. No response, no response, just stonewalling. And here's Joshua Wong um, in prison or you know, being transferred, I think, to court uh, in, in this particular moment. So I'm gonna um, uh, wrap it up here. Um, just uh, short of my hour, and I think we still have about a half an hour for questions. So um, I think through Hong Kong, we can we can see uh, the determination of China um, to to flex its muscles and not to worry too much about the international community, the response. Obviously, uh, the U.S. and other open societies responded with various degrees of sanctions and uh, other measures against uh, China and against Hong Kong as a result of the, the crackdown. But um, I think that this is that it's Hong Kong today. Obviously, it's Taiwan. If not tomorrow, then you know, metaphorically tomorrow, the one country, two systems model that was supposed to, to guarantee this high degree of autonomy for Hong Kong for fifty years was, in fact, originally um, developed for Taiwan, and it was rolled out first in Hong Kong and then in Macau two years later. And the idea was that the people in Taiwan, the compatriots, so to speak, um, uh, would be able to see just how wonderfully uh, Hong Kong was doing and would want to embrace the motherland. Obviously, that hasn't worked. Uh, people in Taiwan uh, want uh, China less than ever. Um, but uh, Xi Jinping has made it clear that he thinks he has a historical mission to, to deal with the, the Taiwan issue. And this issue of, of sovereignty over a place that China's ruled uh, off and on and uh, not always very, um, very closely um, for, for centuries is, is you know, it's, it's something that Xi Jinping believes. Uh, we can debate the historical merits of it, but the reality is his policies are developed to get Taiwan back. And I think the, um, 
if we go back to the Thatcher, um, Deng Xiaoping uh, uh, talks back in 1982, Thatcher, I think quite rightly, told Deng Xiaoping, um, you don't understand Hong Kong, you don't understand free societies, you guys will make a mess out of this. She was a little more diplomatic than that, but not much, being Maggie Thatcher. And uh, Deng said, well, we actually think we understand it pretty well, and um, we think we can run it, and the economy will be fine, but if we can't, we can't. Um, you know, it's going to be ours, and at the end of the day, politics is going to rule and we have to have control over this. And I think uh, that's the way they've treated Hong Kong. And I think that's the way they're going to treat Taiwan. If they end up um, destroying the village to save it, so to speak. Uh, in other words, if they, if they inherit uh, a, a wrecked, messed up uh, Taiwan, well, I think so be it. I mean, I think they have made the choice, the decision that uh, they want it back. I think Xi, Xi Jinping for the first time has put a, a, a date on, I think it's 2050, might be 2049, which would be the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic. But the clock is ticking. And I think if Xi Jinping uh, has the kind of long life that Chinese leaders often have, he will be, if not formally in power, at least calling the shots behind the scenes for at least a decade, perhaps two decades or more to come. I mean, he's, he's in his late 60s. Deng Xiaoping died at the age of 92, just before the, uh, the handover in February 1997. Um, so I think that we have to take Xi's uh, threats against Taiwan seriously. And I think, again, it's very poignant that we're speaking um, uh, the, the, the day that uh, Russia's invaded Ukraine. But I think that we see that there are people who will, who will you know, wreck peaceful societies uh, for for their own reasons, um, I think the the example that Hong Kong uh, provides as a, a, a prosperous, free, peaceful city that's been whose liberties have been destroyed um, is is a model for crackdowns that that China would like to um, implement first in Taiwan. We can talk about other countries where it doesn't exercise sovereignty, but I think that China is looking at Hong Kong. The fear used to be that Hong Kong would become, quote, just another Chinese city. I think it's on its way to becoming something worse, and that's to be a peripheral, troublesome region that needs to be hammered into submission, just as the Uyghur Muslim area uh, of Xinjiang is, just as Tibet has been. Um, and uh, I think that's you know, extremely, extremely worrying uh, for, for what it says about China's um, rise in the world and its, un, its apparent unwillingness under Xi Jinping to accept a rules-based international order. So I'll, I'll leave you with this picture of, of my, my colleague, Jimmy Lai. Um, I, I uh, am at the, the new one-year-old NGO, Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, because um, I'm lucky enough to not be in Hong Kong. Um, but I wake up and every day I think about Jimmy Lai and the other colleagues who are in jail just for doing what they've been doing for decades. And uh, it's wrong. Uh, I think that um, freedom and justice ultimately triumph. Tyrannies and autocracies don't last forever. And um, I'm, I'm sorry that Hong Kong is where it is, but I believe in the, the spirit of the Hong Kong people, all those people, those pictures you saw, they're there. They haven't been brainwashed into submission. So I want to thank you and um, look forward to taking your questions um, and hearing from you. If not um, during this session, then please feel free to get in touch with me later on. So thanks for Thank you, much. Dr. Clayford, for such an interesting lecture. And we'll take questions now. 
So the first question is, do you think sanctions work for China or Russia with Hong Kong being totally destroyed, Ukraine being invaded? What do you think would happen to Taiwan and will and where will Russia and China stop? Wow, that's a lot of questions. Um, uh, I, let's see, do I think sanctions work? Um, I think that sanctions have more generally tend to have a greater political and social impact than they do economic impact. Uh, sanctions probably or could, serious sanctions could have more of an impact on Russia than they probably would on China. China's a $15 trillion economy. Uh, China can do without the rest of the world. China could be shut off from the rest of the world. And in fact, China might want to be shut off from the rest of the world. Um, so that's the sanctions issue. Um, sorry, the other two questions were? Uh, so with Hong Kong being totally destroyed, Ukraine you know, being invaded, what do you think would happen to Taiwan and where will Russia and China stop? Yeah, well, I don't think Russia and China are acting in concert. So I'm not, I'm not a Russian expert. Uh, I don't know where, where Putin is going to stop. Um, I, I think he's going to have his hands full uh, with the Ukraine for, for some time. Um, so let's just try to stop him. Hopefully he can be stopped in the Ukraine. Um, I, I'm, I'm terribly concerned about Taiwan. Um, in some ways, it's remarkable that Taiwan has lasted as long as it has. I think when um, the U.S. normalized relations in 1979, and even going back to 1971, I guess when uh, China, when the People's Republic of China took over from um, from uh, Taiwan, the, the United Nations seat, I think a lot of uh, countries just figured that Taiwan would just be absorbed into China long ago. Uh, the fact that Taiwan, Taiwan has developed into a thriving, robust, and very prosperous democracy is a, is a real challenge to China, because I think it gives the lie to Beijing's notion that Chinese people can't handle democracy, and that if you don't have the Communist Party, then it'll just be chaos. And uh, I think um, I think that's a lie, and uh, I think that the people of Taiwan um, are determined to to resist China as best they can. Um, uh, clearly, Xi Jinping would like to see victory uh, of a sort that you know perhaps looks a little bit like like Hong Kong in the sense that you don't have a full scale war. Uh, you don't. A lot of people don't die. You take over the semiconductor facilities of TSMC, for example, and and other things with, without firing a shot. But that you get Taiwan to submit. Um, I don't know when and how this is going to happen, but I think that uh, I think the world really needs to figure out how to stand up um, and confront Chinese aggression. And uh, the the irony is that by acting, uh, I think prematurely and very aggressively, China seems to have, um, if not united um, its neighbors against it, it, it certainly has provoked a response. So you've got you've got the quad, uh, you have uh, Japan, um, uh, Australia, India, um, the US, um, you know, in alliances that uh, are designed to, to thwart further Chinese ambitions. But um, it's it's a very, very tense time. I don't think an attack on Taiwan is imminent, but uh, you know, at these moments of, of kind of international chaos, when there's the distraction of, of one invasion, it wouldn't be beyond a country, a, a North Korea or a China to try something provocative in East Asia. So, uh, you know, very, a very uh, dangerous time. Thank you. And one of our attendees is saying thank you from Hong Konger. <laughs> thank you for watching. The next question is, um, uh, one of our attendees 
So she has many friends in Hong Kong and some think that uh, China would not affect business. And she's asking if they're being too optimistic. I think that's a great question. That's a kind of multi-billion dollar question. Um, uh, I think China made the calculation that the national security law would affect uh, a relatively small number of Hong Kong pro-democracy activist dissidents, uh, and that uh, it could be walled off from the, the rest of the court system and that international business in particular would feel would still feel quite uh, comfortable. I guess international business, Hong Kong business, mainland Chinese business could feel comfortable. They'd still enjoy a nice lifestyle in Hong Kong, the, the, the expatriates, um, that the courts would still uh, be be honest when it came to and fair when it came to business disputes, um, and uh, I, I think that's you know that's a legitimate uh, point of view. Uh, it's very very hard to dislodge um, international financial centers, and of course Hong Kong, uh, along with London and New York, is one of the world's three great financial centers. It's it's hard to to break up and disrupt the kind of networks that are necessary to, to make a financial center. Um, and so if it had just been the national security law, they might have had a good chance of success because I think, let's let's be frank, I mean, there are quite a few people, uh, particularly foreigners, who didn't like the disruption of 2019. You have a couple million people out in the streets. You know, you, you sort of worry, are your kids going to be able to go to school? Are they going to be able to get home from school? Can I can I go to my club? You know, can I move around? It's uh, it was, you know, really, I think, quite difficult for many people who felt like they had no particular stake in it. Um, weren't You know, they weren't Hong Kongers. But I think that the pandemic has thrown all those calculations, um, in, you know, into uh, put those calculations at risk. Uh, right now, um, you know, we're, we're approaching, I mean, Hong Kong did a good job, I think, a really good job in keeping deaths very low uh, and keeping infections low. I think there were, a few, uh, as of a month ago, there were fewer than 200 people who had died in Hong Kong as a result of COVID. I mean, extraordinary, uh, particularly if, it, if one compares that to, say, New York City, a city of you know, similar population. Um, but uh, now the co under on, under Omicron, I mean, the numbers have spiraled out of control. And we're I don't know the latest, but I mean, we're up to something like, you know, in the neighborhood of 10,000 cases. So the whole strategy of, of, you know, really aggressive contact tracing has uh, completely, uh, you know, been ripped to shreds. The hospitals are the healthcare system is under incredible stress. Um, and the death rate is rising. Uh, Xi Jinping took the extra or his his advisors took the extraordinary step of of uh, uh, using the Dagongbao newspaper, which is a uh, controlled by the Communist Party, to send a very public message to Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government that they had better get their act together and get this under control. I mean, Xi Jinping does not need to use Dagongbao to communicate with Carrie Lam, to put it bluntly. As a matter of fact, he could pick up the phone. He probably wouldn't. He'd have somebody else pick up the phone. But the point is they're using uh, very public methods uh, to try to get the Hong Kong government to get things under control. This, of course, is a critical year for Xi Jinping. He's hoping to start a third uh, five-year term, an unprecedented third five-year term. Nobody since Mao has served more than 10 years as head of the, the Communist Party and as head of the state. So the last thing he wants is is uh, Hong Kong uh, COVID spinning out of control because the whole narrative of the party has been uh, we look look at how great we are the rest of the world couldn't handle COVID we can handle COVID and now 
you know, they're blaming Hong Kong. It's like, you guys, you, you know, you're still like a British colony. You're not thinking like us. You're still thinking like your colonial masters. So they're still blaming, uh, blaming this really on the, the British Western way of, of approaching uh, business. So schools have now uh, effectively been shut down. The summer holiday has been brought forward. So March and April schools will be shut. Vaccination rates are low, particularly among older people. So they're trying to boost those. They're going to test everybody. They're probably going to go into some kind of modified lockdown. So I, this is a long answer to the question, but I think that this has made it really difficult for non-Chinese uh, businesses to want to be in Hong Kong. So we're seeing people like uh, the big liquor company, Pernod Ricard, is uh, asking its, used to, its regional headquarters are in Hong Kong, but it's telling its senior executives, you can't be in Hong Kong because what's the good of being in a regional center that you can't travel from? Because Hong Kong is pretty much cut off from the world now and because of the long quarantine requirement, the, the, uh, the lack of flights. So I, I, the short answer to your question is... Um, if it had just been the national security law, they might have gotten away with it. The combination of the national security law and the pandemic means that I think Hong Kong's days as an international financial center are, are really in question. Thank you. And there's a comment from one of the attendees. Um, thank you for an insightful, substantive talk. Uh, would love to hear Dr. Clifford's thoughts as at some point in the future on other areas besides Taiwan that China is eyeing for subjugation. Um, that's a great question. Um, for, it does have border disputes uh, with many of its its neighbors. I think it's 16 countries border um, uh, border uh, China. It depends how you count Taiwan, of course, um, and Hong Kong and Macau. But it has hard borders with with um, well over a dozen countries, and it has border disputes with with many of those, um, including Korea, um, India, of course, where uh, it um, engaged in the first deadly conflict um, in decades a couple of years ago. Bhutan, where it's uh, it's engaging in infrastructure projects that seem to threaten the territorial integrity of Bhutan. Nepal, where it's uh, it's exercising a very heavy hand. So there's the issue of its neighbors, uh, places like Cambodia, where um, it looks like it's building a military base or a naval base. Um, but I think that the the broader context is one. So that's that's the neighbors, uh, and you know there's a physicality to that and a sovereignty issue. Um, but then I think the broader issue is the extent to which uh, China wants to export its model where it can, particularly in um, more authoritarian states. And I'm thinking of places in, in some places in Africa or Latin America that um, are happy to take, let's say, Chinese telecom equipment and. Uh, Often uh, corrupt local elites uh, will work with uh, the Chinese to to get um, Chinese telecom equipment in there, which can which is often sold at an inflated price, which uh, results in corruption, further entrenches local elites, um, and results in not only high prices for local consumers, but also allows for surveillance by Chinese and by local rulers. So that's. That's a kind of also a separate issue, but it's part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And I think it's definitely something to watch because China is then using its relationships with many of these countries to get support in the United Nations and related bodies like the United Nations Human Rights Commission. But the issue that I'm more focused on, uh, perhaps being an American, living in an open society, is, is the way in which China is trying to influence and to, uh, to shape debate 
in open societies. So it often uses economic leverage to punish countries who do that do things or advocate policies that it doesn't like. Um, and when that fails, or in, in to complement that, it uses uh, much more muscular, even bullying kinds of tactics. So let me just um, take a couple of examples. Australia, uh, a couple of years ago, called for a, a full and open investigation into the origins of COVID. Sounds reasonable, right? I mean, don't all of us as global citizens really deserve to, to know where COVID came from and you know how it crossed the species barrier. Uh, China said it wanted that too, but China felt that this was an attack uh, on it, which maybe it was, in I don't think it was an attack, but I mean, it really was an attempt that if, if this had broken out in America, I'd like to think that we would you know, honestly and thoroughly uh, investigate its origins. China reacted by, uh, despite the fact that Australia did what China said it wanted, uh, an, an investigation in, into COVID, China reacted by uh, trying to punish Australia in a variety of ways, uh, notably by cutting off uh, exports of many Australian goods, especially wine, beef, agricultural products um, uh, to, to China. Um, we could go around and we could look at many examples of this little Lithuania, which uh, opened a, a trade office um, for Taiwan that, that used the name Taiwan, which um, Beijing didn't like, uh, was seen as a kind of quasi-diplomatic relation by Lithuania, uh, which, by the way, has a population, I think, around Hong Kong's. I mean, it's, a, it's a, not a populous country. Again, it's hard to see this as any kind of threat to Beijing, but Beijing responded by cutting off Lithuanian um, exports to China. It denied that it cut them off, it, but it just removed the, the country code and the import classification. So it said, basically, you don't exist. We've literally zeroed you out. Then it went one step further and it told German uh, automakers and German car component makers they, and, and other German companies, European companies, that they couldn't even use components sourced from Lithuania if they were going into China. I mean, this is in clear violation of the, of the WTO agreements and of any sense of a rules-based international order, but they're trying to bring Lithuania to its knees. And they've actually thrown the EU into, if not crisis, I think into, you know, put the EU in a very, very difficult position. Norway, uh, an independent commission gives out the, the Nobel Peace Prize every year. Um, in 2008 or 2009, uh, Lu Xiaobo, a Chinese poet, dissident, uh, imprisoned at the time, was given the Nobel Peace Prize. China reacted by uh, restricting Nor Norway's exports uh, to China, especially of salmon. Uh, it, it denied the Eurovision uh, Song Contest winner, who happened to be Norwegian that year, or maybe it was in 2010, uh, a visa for China. I mean, it, it just took a a variety of large and small actions. Norway just, uh, I mean, kowtow did so much for China, but it wasn't until 2016, co coincidentally or not, the year that Liu Xiaobo died in Chinese custody, still in Chinese custody. It was only after his death that China eased up on Norway. So we could we can go on, we look at the US, the UK, the kind of penetration of the Communist Party affiliated uh, the United uh, Front, United Front Work Department uh, to mobilize Chinese students uh, to, you know, to oppose pro-democracy moves, to oppose attempts to invite the Dalai Lama on university campuses. I mean, we, we go through 
we can go through, you know, hundreds of examples of China's attempt to shape the discourse and, and stop free discussion in open democratic societies. Thank you, Dr. Clifford. Uh, due to the limited time, we'll just take one more question. So the last question will be, do you think that a new axis of anti-Western powers comprising Russia, China, Iran, et cetera, is now forming? Uh, I don't think it's an axis. Um, I do think, uh, I've long thought that the Russia-China marriage is one of convenience, but it's turned out to be extremely convenient um, and uh, has uh, been beyond my expectations. I think given the historical enmity and mistrust uh, between those two great powers, um, it's not going to stand the, stand the test of time. But uh, at the moment, it's very concerning. I know that I'm, I'm sure that China is watching the way that the West, the way that the open societies respond to the Ukraine in, um, invasion with, with great interest. Because, of course, what China wants is... Um, to be able to take Taiwan and, and have no more of a reaction than, than the West um, responded to Hitler's grab of the Anschluss of Austria, um, sort of said, wow, that's too bad and, and moved on. And I, I think that's what happened in Hong Kong. I think if that's what happens in Ukraine, it's, it's really, uh, it's obviously very bad for Taiwan. So I don't see an axis. In fact, I think Putin may have misled uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, this The invasion puts China in a very tough position because uh, they they believe in non-interference and they don't they don't like uh, you know kind of countries messing around with other countries' sovereignty. But what Putin's done is a very interesting uh, test that China can learn from. Uh, you know, look, uh, Iran is is I think these these countries are are forced into uh, alliances of convenience more than any kind of axis or let alone an axis of evil. Well, I think I can take one more question. Um, is it really possible that Western countries and allies will stand up to China without the buy-in of corporations, which rely heavily on the large market of the mainland? That is an excellent question. And uh, I think we'll see the answer to that in over the coming years. I think um, it's very hard for corporations to stand up. I mean, take the example of the National Basketball Association, which uh, recently um, fired uh, uh, Enos Cantor, Enos Cantor Freedom, a new, a new American citizen from the, uh, effectively fired him because he spoke out about Chinese uh, policies. Um, Daryl Morey of the Houston Rockets lost his job when he tweeted in support of of Hong Kongers. I think individual uh, corporations, even multi-billion dollar ones, find it very hard to resist the, the lure, the understandable lure of the China market. And I think that governments have to stand up. Governments have to set the rules. Um, within those rules, let companies do what they like. But if if China is intent on be, in, in being in an adversarial relationship with open societies, it's up to open societies and their governments, our leaders, all of us, really, to set the rules that make it impossible, for example, for um, pension funds. We have, we have pension fund money from American healthcare workers, um, policemen, firemen, first responders that's going into Chinese military companies through U.S. private equity firms, uh, through, through ETFs and, and other uh, investment products. And I think we have to start setting some rules 
that make that impossible to happen. But companies on their own are not not going to do it. In fact, especially Wall Street is going to is going to fight the attempt to to start separating, start decoupling from China. I mean, of course, this can't happen overnight, but uh, I think we have to start moving in that direction. Thank you, Dr. Clifford, for such an insightful uh, presentation today. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And this will conclude our, uh, uh, our event today. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it.